0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 170, A Rogue Survival. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It is time once again to roll the dice and generate a random seed that will allow me to adventure into a wonderful land full of wizards, rogues,
1: and sorcery. Are you talking about our live stream coming up on September the 24th, where people can watch us do a three-part episode on the Home Computer Wars? No, but let's talk about that. (laughs) Yes, yes. As uh, Jeff uh, indicated, we are today going to be talking about that wonderful genre of games called the roguelike. But before we do that, we do want to remind you all once again that after this two-part look at Rogue and its many imitators and... Admirers hits the airways, we are going to be producing a massive three-part series on the home computer price wars of the early 1980s that caused a complete crash of the marketplace not too dissimilar from that which affected the video game industry not long before that. After a year off, we are returning to the crazy world of live streaming for one day only to record these three episodes all in one marathon setting on Saturday, September the 24th. At what time, Jeffrey? 12.30 Central or
0: 17.30 GMT. From that, you can translate
1: it to your local time equivalent. Absolutely. Be on the lookout for that in the coming month. Before that, yes, let's get back to your world of wizards and rogues and sorcery and all of that with uh, a little game that we like to call Rogue.
0: Which has no relation to NetHack or Hack or all these other ones.
1: Yeah, I think we might just find a connection or two there as uh, we continue this journey, Jeffrey, just a little bit. A game of humble origins back in the very early days of computer gaming that managed to spread through the early networks available in the days before the World Wide Web on the Internet, which was always just kind of a little bit outside of the mainstream. Always with just this slightly more hardcore group of computer users until it suddenly blossomed with the indie game movement to be one of the dominant forms of video gaming that you find today amongst smaller titles, non-AAA titles, and even occasionally in AAA titles. Everything from Spelunky, my cat's namesake, to The Binding of Isaac, to Hades, and beyond can be directly traced back to this little game from the University of California, Santa Cruz first worked on in the early 1980s.
0: So we do know that Rogue is the original. It is the true source of all. (laughs) The grandfather.
1: It is. Now, that isn't to say that there were not other games like it coming out at about the same time, some of which even came out before it such as Don Wars beneath Apple Manor. But for our purposes today, where we're more concerned about tracing the spread of this kind of gameplay, we're not going to worry about that. These games were parallel evolutions. They were all born in their own vacuums. They did not influence Rogue. Rogue did not influence them. And generally speaking, they did not influence the games that came after Rogue. We are going to use Rogue as our ground zero here while acknowledging the fact here at the beginning that it was not necessarily the first game to do some of the things that it did. I think before we get into the deep of the history about this,
0: what actually constitutes a Mm roguelike? You hear that term thrown around a lot. I've heard some people go, it's roguelike, it's roguelite, L-I-T-E, sort of like it incorporates some aspects but not all. What actually is a roguelike? What's a roguelite? Some of the
1: other variations that might be out there, and how does it all trace back to rogue? Right. Some people have even tried occasionally to use the term rogue-like, like which makes it sound like it's gonna the game's gonna come and eat your shield or something. Quite possibly. I'm certainly defending my shield now. <laughs> so uh, there's disagreement on what it takes to be a true rogue-like game. I think there are a couple of key components that just about everyone can agree go into being a roguelike. The very first one of those is randomly generated worlds with randomly generated loot. Rogue is always a game where you are not playing through the same scenario twice. You may have the same objective every single time. You may have the same basic gameplay mechanics every single time but you're being thrown into a new dungeon, a new space to explore something that has been procedurally generated just for you, uh, based on the pre-existing assets. I would say that's a good starting point for what a roguelike has to be. A few of the other hallmarks of a roguelike have perhaps been a little more permeable over time as roguelite games have started to spread. But in the early days, just as important as that randomization was the idea that these are turn-based games. Obviously, there are tons of games that are roguelikes or lights today that are not strictly turn-based. But this was a big part of what distinguished these games back in the day. You had all the time in the world to figure out what you wanted to do next. Every time you moved, Everything else moved, but as long as you weren't doing anything, nothing else was doing anything either. The other big thing that defines a roguelike, which again has sometimes in roguelites been twisted a little bit in more recent times, is the idea of perma-death. When you die, your run is over. You're starting over with a new character and a new dungeon and new stuff. So at least in its kind of earliest incarnations, that is what we would consider a rogue-like. A turn-based game in which a single-player controlling a single-player character is exploring a randomly generated dungeon in order to achieve some final goal, usually collecting some treasure in the deepest bowels of said dungeon. Any misstep, any death is permanent, and you have to start all over again.
0: Random dungeon, completely random, random side quest, completely random, random items, and hardcore mode is on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so that effectively encompasses what Rogue is. is a dungeon crawl that has permadeath on, randomly generated levels, and you keep going down, down, down until you reach
1: victory. Pretty much. Or death. Victory or death. <laughs> whichever comes first. Definitely the archetype of come back with your shield or on it. Pretty much. So then, of course, the question that we always ask, because we are a video game history podcast, is how did we get here? The answer to that goes back to really some of the earliest days of not just computer gaming, but even interactive programming itself. This entire thing was started by a couple of students at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman. It would not have been possible for them to create what they created without the creation of a little operating system by the name of Unix. So now it's time to go back to the 1960s. Some 15 years, 12, 15 years, give or take, before Rogue was even a glimmer in the eyes of these college students, Toy and Wickman, to talk a little bit about the evolution of time-sharing operating systems. We did an episode on that. We did, though we didn't really talk about Unix. So that part of it is going to be somewhat new. We won't go into huge detail on time-sharing as a concept, because we did do a whole episode on that, and how important it was to the spread of early mainframe games. What we do need to do is talk a little bit about the origins of time-sharing at MIT. The concept of time-sharing, this idea that multiple users are all using the same computer at essentially the same time to do their own programming tasks, is something that grew really out of... MIT's unique computing capacity, particularly the real-time computer Whirlwind, that had been created initially as a flight simulator control computer and then morphed into the heart of a early warning missile tracking defense system to blanket the entire United States. Whirlwind was the first computer that had true real-time operation. It was just one person, but you could sit in front of that computer. You could give the computer a command and so quickly as to appear essentially instantaneous, it would give you a result. In a time when computing was inputting a bunch of tape or cards and then waiting for it to do whatever it was going to do and spit out a result, this was absolutely incredible science fiction stuff. From there at MIT, you had certain individuals, uh, particularly John McCarthy, who had the idea that if we're interacting with a computer like this, it is much of the time not actually working for us because you're giving it its commands, it's spitting out its result on a real-time system, but then you're spending a bunch of time pouring over that data. You're doing a lot of reading and parsing and all of this, and the computer's not actually doing anything. What if we could divide a computer's attention amongst multiple users? What if we could keep track of what it was doing for a dozen people, a hundred people, a thousand people? At the same time, and parcel out its vast computer memory and its vast computer resources, its processing cycles, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, a little bit there, in really minute segments, each individual user is going to feel like that computer is working only for them. But in fact, it is working for all sorts of people simultaneously. There were a group of other professors at MIT that were very intrigued by this idea because by this time, and we're talking the late 1950s at this point, Whirlwind had been inaugurated at the beginning of the decade. It had really been operational from the beginning of the decade. Work on it had started in the 40s. So there had grown up a whole group of students that had been graduate students, in some cases, I think even undergraduate students, that had had a chance to program on Whirlwind and were like, hey, this is pretty neat. And then they get out into what constituted the real world of computing at that time, batch processing, punched cards. And they're like, gee, this really sucks. We want to recreate that experience that we had. People like Herb Teeger, Francisco Corbato, guys that we're not going to get into their background here because we're rushing through it. But guys at MIT that wanted something more. And so since John McCarthy was more involved in AI research... The time-sharing thing was something he just kind of brainstormed on the side. He handed it over to this new generation, and they came up with the Compatible Time-Sharing System, or CTSS, which was one of the very first practical time-sharing systems implemented. From there, these people got ambitious in a way that only MIT professors can get ambitious and decided that they needed to move on from there to create the be-all and end-all of time-sharing systems, the most incredibly complete time-sharing system anyone had ever seen. This was the genesis of Project Multics. Multics. M-U-L-T-I-C-S is short for Multiplexed Information and Computing Service. The project began in 1964. It was a three-way partnership between MIT and a group within MIT called Project MAC, M-A-C, General Electric, which at that time had a computer division, and Bell Labs, the very powerful research arm of AT&T which at this time is still a gigantic monopoly that controls the entire phone system in the United States good old Ma Bell the idea was the people at MIT that had already been doing research into this whole time-sharing thing would define the concept of the system they would spell out the parameters they would essentially be the project managers for this whole thing scoping it figuring out what was needed figuring out how everything fits together general electric which, through its work, which we talked about in our timesharing episode on the Dartmouth timesharing system, had become the early hardware expert in time sharing. Even though their computer division was short-lived and would fail not too long after this, there was a brief period of time where it was them and not IBM or CDC or one of these other powerful companies that was seen as the time sharing company, largely because of that Dartmouth connection. GE would provide the computer. The GE645, which would be specifically created with time-sharing in mind. Then General Electric and Bell Labs would split the programming duties between them, primarily, to actually build this bloody thing. Programming something like this is incredibly complex, and it involved all sorts of stuff that had never really been required of computers before. Now, I'm not a tech person, so I'm coming at this at a very high level. Do forgive me if any of that high-level misses some of the important nuance in this. You have a few different things you have to worry about here. One of these is you have to have memory management, real memory management, because for the first time, a computer is not dedicating all of its capability to one task. This is a multitasking machine. It's kind of like preemptive multitasking today in a way, except that Instead of one person running many programs on their computer at the same time, it's multiple people each running a single program (laughs) at the same time. So you have to have a memory management system making sure that the same slice of memory isn't being used by the same two, five, 20 people at the same time. That would be bad. You also need greater awareness of and management of peripherals, what we might call drivers today. I mean, I don't think they called them that back then. But you need to make sure that all of these different peripherals, all of these different terminals and drives and printers and teletypes all over the place are able to interface with this thing. And again, that they are staying in their own lane using their own little segment of the computer and that they can be recognized and used. The other thing is when you were doing batch processing, which is the primary paradigm at this time, you're just running one program at a time sequentially. You load your job in to memory, your job is done by the program, and the result is spit out. The computer is done with you at that point. They don't have to worry about the data that you inputted into the computer, because it's the only data it's working with, it works with it, and then it's gone. Now you have multiple people with their programs being worked on at the same time. So this data needs to reside in storage on the computer and be accessed in storage in a coherent way, which means you need a file system for the first time on a computer. If you're starting to think to yourself, well, gee, Alex, it sounds like you're describing an operating system. Well, yes. Yes, I am. Operating systems are very, very complex.
0: They have grown in complexity over the years, and there's actually a lot of theories that go into that. There's a lot of thought that goes into, okay, what is the bare minimum that I need to have in a kernel, which is sort of like the command and control of the entire operating system, in order to just do basic things? There's different permission levels or shells that are built around that. The thing is, people go like, you know, it would be really nice if I could just do this, and for convenience sake... Have it be in the kernel. And then the problem is you get what's known as kernel bloat. The kernel gets really, really big and complex, and it's unmanageable, and it sort of defeats the purpose of what is known as level zero, the kernel. And then someone comes along and says, you know, you're being too complex. Rip out all this junk. We're going to start with this very simple thing, and then the bloat starts all over again. (laughs) It seems to be a common thread in a lot of operating systems. We had that with Windows. Windows NT, Mm -hmm. which is the sort of great-grandfather of the Windows operating system you are likely using now if you're using Windows. It went through a few different iterations. There's sort of like the NT version 4, which was sort of the really big popular one. That was used primarily in businesses. Then it went into the whole Windows 2000, Windows XP. That's sort of another generation. Windows 7 is sort of another generation, 7 and 8. So, on into Windows 10 and 11, it's sort of another generation where they sort of reworked some of that kernel. But there are still remnants of the original kernel of NT4 hiding in there somewhere, I imagine. What Alex is talking about here is sort of the perennial operating system, Unix, which has a lot of influences to this day. A lot of things that you don't even think of probably run Unix. Mm -hmm. If you have an Android phone, That technically runs Unix, a different flavor of it, for sure. Something that's highly customized to the job of cell phone, but it's still Unix. It still has sort of that old ancient Unix code and thought processes that it brings on to the modern era. There's a lot of things where you have Linux, which is known as Linus's Unix, Mm because Linus Torvalds decided to go, you know, I really like how Unix is. But it would be better if it did this. Off to the races we go with that. There's a lot of different distributions out there. It goes really, really crazy. I will try to put into the show notes some stuff that goes into the creation of Unix, a little bit into the various Unix distributions. And heck, if you want to play around with it, you can in your own virtual environment on your system. If you have any modern version of Windows, and I do this myself actually for managing the podcast website, I actually run uh, there's a Windows subsystem for Linux, and I run Linux inside of Windows, and I use that for Linux tools to help me run the website that runs They Create Worlds. They Create Worlds runs on Unix. Linux, but different distribution.
1: Exactly. We're not quite there yet. Right now, we're talking about Multics. Multics was incredibly ambitious, and it had some very important firsts in operating systems because they were having to create an operating system as part of this time-sharing. One of those things is it was the first operating system that had a hierarchical file system, which is just standard today, but it had never been done before this time. So that's all a big deal, but it ended up being too ambitious, that bloat you were talking about. Those problems are something that go all the way back to the beginning of operating system development. It turns out that it was too ambitious. It was too bloated. It was too disastrous. It was going nowhere. It was buggy. It was complex. And there was no end in sight to fixing this thing. In the end, Bell Labs decided to pull out of the project. They decided they were not going to get what they wanted out of it, and they left. This didn't sit well with some of the people at Bell Labs that were actually working on the project, not because they necessarily liked Multics so much specifically, though they did like the goals of Multics, but more because this was their entire computing capacity. Bell Labs was not a hotbed of computer science research. They were part of this uh, Multics project, Project Mac, but that was the extent of it. They had a GE645 computer as part of working on Multics, but once they pulled out, GE was like, and we're taking our computer back now. Keith, thanks. Bye. One of the individuals that had worked on this project, a programmer by the name of Ken Thompson, was really kind of nonplussed about this because he was having fun learning how to do things like file structures, these new never-before-done things during Multics, and he wanted to keep working on this stuff. He just loved playing with computers. One of the things that made Bell Labs really unique and really effective as a research institute or as an R&D facility is that they would allow their people to just play. Bell understood that if you are just focusing on a practical end Yeah, you might get there, but oftentimes to really make a great leap forward, you just need to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Blue sky research. This was encouraged at Bell Labs. Not everything had to have a determined end goal. Someone like Ken Thompson had great latitude to do whatever the heck he wanted within Bell Labs, but he couldn't do it without a computer. That was a bit of a problem. Bell Labs was not going to get him another one. It just so happened that the Multics people shared a floor within the uh, Bell Labs complex in Murray Hill, New Jersey, with a far more well-endowed department, which was the Acoustic and Behavioral Research Department. Now, remember, Bell Labs is the research arm of AT&T, which is in the telephone business. So acoustics research, that's just a little bit important in this context. This department got all of the computers they could ever possibly want or need. If they said they needed a computer to do some acoustical research, by Jove, they got it. When they got a newer computer, they just shoved their old computer off in the corner someplace and forgot about it. Ken Thompson discovered that the Acoustic and Behavioral Research Department had a DEC PDP-7 computer just kind of sitting around gathering dust. By this time period, the PDP-7 was a very primitive thing. We're talking the end of the 1960s now, like 1969-ish. This was a very primitive computer at this point. It had been far superseded by other stuff that came along. but. Nobody was using it. And so Ken Thompson was able to procure it and take it over to his side of things and use this as a test bet and just play around with the things that interested him. This included games. He ported Space War to it, the ubiquitous Space War. He created a game called Space Travel, which was a two dimensional game where you just kind of flew around the solar system and were like, oh, hey, look, it's all the stuff in the solar system. He was doing stuff like that, but he was also continuing his research from Multics. He had been particularly interested in the file system and creating new file systems. In his research here, he was not trying to recreate at this early stage a time-sharing system. He was just trying to play around and fool around with, hey, can I get a kind of cool file system together? Once the file system was coming together, he and other people that were there, it wasn't just him, started, you know, poking around, can I do this and can I do that? Because of the limitations, of the PDP-7, this was a very primitive computer. It had to run very efficiently in a small amount of memory, and he had to get enough power going to get this all working. So he actually started creating it in a high-level programming language, which at the time was unusual for an operating system. Though, of course, operating systems were unusual. To define that term for the non-technically inclined, like myself, every computer has its own quote-unquote language, its own way of speaking to it, programming it. It actually has a couple of different ways. We're not going to get down into the weeds on assembly versus machine versus etc Basically, every computer model has its own way that you have to speak with it. A high-level programming language is a language that, through the use of an interpreter, can actually speak with all different kinds of computers. So it makes programs written in that language portable from computer to computer, so long as you have an interpreter that can run on that computer for your language. He started using a high-level language that he called B to write this new operating system of his. Why not A? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what happened to A. But this ended up not being powerful enough. So they moved on to the next letter of the alphabet, C, which is quite possibly one of the most prolific programming languages out there. Exactly. Absolutely. Basic was pretty pervasive, but of course, basic is primitive. It's a beginner's language. C is a more powerful language, especially as it has gone through many more permutations throughout the years, like C++ and C Sharp and all of this stuff down through the line. It's ubiquitous like something like basic but it's also more powerful allows you to actually do serious programming it's powerful enough that you could say create an operating system in it which is what Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie and others did at Bell Labs the C programming language and this operating system that's being developed they were developed hand in hand they were developed for each other and with each other Now like I said this didn't start out as a time sharing operating system you had this big complex time sharing project This multiplexed information and computing service that all of these programmers have been working on. Since they were making something much less powerful, made to run on a much less proficient computer, in the beginning not even necessarily something that was timeshared, they thought to be cute they would call it the uniplexed information and computing service, or Unix At this point, spelled U-N-I-C-S, as Multics was M-U-L-T-I-C-S. So you had the birth of the Unix operating system, which was later changed to be spelled U-N-I-X. So this is big stuff. This is big stuff that goes far beyond our little realm of computer games and video games that we talk about all the time. Unix and C are two things that literally changed the world, literally changed the way that people interacted with and worked with computers and the way that using computers was possible. I mean, this is truly groundbreaking stuff. What does this have to do with a little hack and slash game? We're getting there. I promise you. This is all connected. This is all very important to the story. Unix is started in 1969. It is a kind of first operating version of it, functional version of it, is in existence by around 1971. And as it continues to be refined, it's first announced to the wider world in October of 1973. Unix was groundbreaking for a couple of reasons. I mean, there are many ways that it was groundbreaking technically as an early operating system. As a matter of history and of social history and of computer history more broadly than just the tech side of things, there are a couple of reasons that this is very, very important. First of all, because it began life on the PDP 7, they brought it on up to like the PDP 11 later, you know, they got it on a better computer. But because they started on the PDP 7, it was optimized for lower memory computers, less powerful computers. So, you could have a fancy pants time shared operating system on a mini computer like the PDP 11 that was highly functional. So, this was another big step in the broad opening up of computer use to everybody because mini computers were already bringing down the price of computing, making it more reasonable for smaller and smaller institutions to have computers. But now you were time sharing something like a PDP 11. That meant that you could really open up a wide array of users. That's not the only thing that's important about it, because, I mean, DEC itself did create a time-shared operating system, RSTS, for the PDP-11. The second thing that made Unix very, very important was that it was programmed in C, which means you could use it on a variety of these low-powered computers. And you could use it on powerful computers. It's not like you had to use it on a low-powered computer. It's just that because it had started there, you could use it on this wide breadth of computers It was runnable on all of them, and now you have a greater capability to exchange programs across computer models. Powerful programs, not just little basic programs, but more powerful programs written in a more powerful language. Then the third thing that really cemented it had to do with the powerful monopoly that is AT&T. As I said, AT&T controlled the telephone system, period. When I say that, I don't just mean that they were the only company that provided phone service across the United States, because they did. But they also controlled the entire phone network. Nobody could touch that without AT&T's permission. You could not wire something into the telephone network in the United States without AT&T giving their explicit okay. It was a complete and utter monopoly of everything. This includes the end users, kids. Mm -hmm, Exactly. You used to
0: rent your phone. Mm -hmm. Yes, rent your phone from AT&T. It was a major, big event to be able to just buy a phone from a local electronics store and just slap it in. Mm -hmm. It had to be an AT&T approved if you wanted another phone in your house. You had to have AT&T come out and have a technician
1: Mm -hmm. put the phone in for you. That's right. I mean, this is one of the most thorough monopolies that has existed in the history of the United States. And it did finally attract the attention of the federal government, which occasionally does decide to enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act. Eventually, about a decade later, AT&T is broken up. In this period, the federal government did not break up Ma Bell, but they did force AT&T into a consent decree that basically said, stay in your lane. We're going to let you control the phone system, but you cannot use your immense power over the phone system to then move into other areas of commercial activity and dominate those as well. AT&T was very limited in its ability to expand into new markets. Unix was an incredible for-the-time operating system. AT&T could have well become the Microsoft of its day, in addition to controlling the phone system, except that this would have violated their consent decree with the federal government. They could not commercialize the operating system market. So what this meant is that when it came to Unix, they released it for a very reasonable $99. This is early 1970s money, but it's still very reasonable for a piece of software like an operating system. $99 licensing fee. For that licensing fee, you didn't just get the right to use Unix. You got the source code to Unix. And you were allowed to do with that source code whatever you wanted. Obviously, today, something like Windows with its millions of lines of code is too complex for any one person to, like, hack. But could you imagine what the operating system market would look like if every single person, every single company in the world had access to the Windows source code and was allowed to change it and repackage it and spread it along?
0: We would have very much what we have today in the Unix Linux world where you have right. many different distributions of Windows. hmm Exactly. Just for context, nineteen seventy, we'll just say it's hundred bucks. A hundred bucks in nineteen seventy in today is about seven hundred and sixty three dollars and sixty cents. That's not a lot for a
1: company. No. Exactly. Incredibly reasonable then you could do whatever you wanted with it. You got source code for that.
0: Repackage it and do whatever you want.
1: I think it's fair to say that the the Windows 11 source code is a little more valuable of a commodity than $759. (laughs) It's not like you were just buying a version you could install on your computer and use. You were getting the source code. You were getting the keys to the kingdom. You could do whatever you wanted with Unix. You still can. This was an incredible deal. And because of that, it was incredibly desirable. Because not only could it natively run on just about any computer, as long as you put in the effort to get a C interpreter going and, and make you know a few minor tweaks, but then if you needed it to do this or that a little differently for your setup, for your research, you were allowed to do that. It became the de facto operating system of the research community because it was cheap, which is very important for researchers. They don't always have a lot of money you're operating on grants and whatnot, it was cheap and it was customizable. So it became the backbone of the research community, and because it became the backbone of the research community, it became the backbone of the ARPANET as well, because basically the ARPANET, in many ways the predecessor to the internet, was a network that was created to link research institutions. When the government was going around putting all of these specifications in place for the technology being used in the ARPANET, the research community basically demanded that the Unix operating system be a big part of this. TCPIP, which was after its creation being developed under government contract by the contractor BBN, was then modified and changed and incorporated into Unix because researchers insisted the Unix be a part of all this. It becomes pervasive. It's everywhere. If you were at an academic institution in the mid to late 70s, the 80s, and beyond, you were probably working in some capacity somewhere with Unix computers. And even if you weren't directly, the networks you were using were probably running on Unix. It is an all-pervasive kind of thing. Why did I just spend this whole first part of this episode on Rogue talking about an operating system? It's because of a particular distribution of the Unix operating system called the Berkeley Standard Distribution, or BSD. This is a distribution of Unix that for a time became the most influential, most pervasive Unix distribution in the world. It was eventually superseded by Linux. The BSD diehards will still today tell you that that was an absolute travesty because they still believe that BSD is the one Unix to rule them all and that Linux is is all sizzle and no steak or whatever cliche you want to use. So it's not dominant anymore, but BSD became the dominant version. The reason for that is it became a very early pioneer of what we would now consider the open source software movement. Basically, what happened is there was a professor at Berkeley by the name of Bob Fabry, or Fabry, I don't know how he pronounces it, F-A-B-R-Y. He learned about Unix pretty early on. He was a professor that was teaching students about operating systems and how to create operating systems and all of this kind of thing. So when he learned about Unix, he just thought this was a great thing because it was cheap and modifiable. So he could let his students loose on this thing. They could learn all about operating systems by actually tinkering with an actual operating system. So he got a license for Unix and introduced it at Berkeley. There were a group of students that really took to this thing and really modified it like crazy, the most notable of which was a gentleman by the name of Bill Joy. Who would go on to be the co-founder of Sun Microsystems, which has done uh, one or two important things in the the realm of computing in its day, I think it's fair to say. Just a bit. (laughs) They started creating their own version. Joy is a programming genius. He is really good at conceptualizing things and implementing things and just making things better. And so he was a primary driver, though he was not in any way the only programmer. They started creating their own version of Unix, which became uh, the BSD, the Berkeley Standard Distribution. With the blessing of Febri, they started distributing theirs for a nominal licensing fee. Then, of course, just like original Unix, anyone who got it got the source code. They had the ability to modify it. As the operating system spread, they started getting feedback on improvements that could be made and other utility programs that could build off the functionality of Unix to do this and that and the other thing. Bug fixes sometimes, just all of the stuff was coming in. It became essentially the first open-source software project where you had people all over the country, and I'm sure the world, that were making fixes, additions, changes, extensions to BSD Unix, submitting them to Joy and the others at Berkeley, who would then take the pick of the litter, the stuff that they thought worked particularly well, and then incorporate that material into the next version of the BSD. It's an open-source software project. They didn't call them that back then, but that's what it was. This just fed on itself and got bigger and, and more complex. And like I said, it wasn't just that the operating system would change, but there would be other utilities and programs that would be created, you know, apps, as we would say today, to run in Unix that took advantage of that operating system environment to do other things. One of the interesting ones that came about in the middle of the 1970s was the idea of cursor addressability. That's just a very fancy way of saying what today is a very simple concept. Now, in the mid-1970s, video display terminals were starting to become more commonplace. We talked about this some in our time-sharing episode. In the early days of time-sharing, in the early days of this real-time computing, you were very rarely using a monitor. There were sometimes monitors, like the PDP-1 monitor on which you played Space War, Oftentimes, what you were talking about doing was using a teletype, a high-speed printer of some kind or a teletype that was literally printing out everything that the computer was outputting on reams of paper. Obviously, that's inefficient, waste of paper and all of that. And so as time went on and technology got cheaper, Multics was a big part of this, but it, it expanded beyond Multics. You started getting more and more video display terminals. It looks like a 1970s, early 1980s desktop computer except it's what we would call a dumb terminal because it doesn't actually have any processing power, any computational power within it. It's just a CRT attached to a keyboard that is then a peripheral that's attached to the computer, and it allows you to input text just like you do on a modern computer today, essentially. Except we have to remember that this was coming out of the paradigm of the teletype. So a teletype just prints stuff line by line up the screen, and when it's done, it's done, and that line's done, and you move on to the next line. The early video display terminals were mostly the same way. You could type a line and hit enter, and then that line was done. You couldn't go back to that line. You couldn't modify that line. It was just sequential, line by line by line by line of text. As video display companies continued fooling around with video displays, and as memory got cheaper and you could incorporate more screen memory into these VDTs, In 1976, a company by the name of Lear Siegler released a terminal called the ADM-3A. I am not an expert on the history of display terminals. That's an area that I think someone should do some more serious research and write a book on, because I'd be fascinated to read it. I cannot say that this was the very first cursor-addressable terminal. I wouldn't be surprised if it was not the first. But it was one of the first successful cursor addressable terminals. And what this meant is that your little blinking cursor, instead of just being at the bottom of the screen and you type things like, say, on a parser on a text adventure… You could actually reposition your cursor across the entire screen, Jeffrey. Heaven forbid. And you could edit text anywhere on the screen. Can you believe this age of wonders they lived in in 1976? I'm sure Notepad would have something to say about that. Exactly. Something that we just take for granted that's so primitive that there is just a free program thrown into the operating system that does the exact same thing was Big News in 1976. So Bill Joy, genius that he is, created a new text editor program called VI, still exists today, just like Unix, that allowed you to position your cursor anywhere on the screen and do text anywhere on the screen. Cursor addressable, as in you have a cursor and you can address it to any point in screen memory. VI is very pervasive. I used it today. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Created by Bill Joy, founder of Sun Microsystems, eventual founder of Sun Microsystems back in 1976. Then there was another gentleman at Berkeley by the name of Ken Arnold. If you recall our Ultima episodes, there was a Ken Arnold that helped with the early Ultimas. This is a different Ken Arnold. There are two Ken Arnolds important in the history of video gaming and computer gaming. This is the other one, not the Ultima one. Another gentleman named Ken Arnold took this a step Further, Because at this time, there was already a character set, invented back in 1963, that was a standard character set for use on computers. This, of course, was the American Standard Code for Information Interchange. Otherwise known as ASCII. Exactly. Ken Arnold realized that now that you had cursor-addressable terminals, where you could plop things up anywhere on the screen... You could actually use ASCII characters, which are basically just letters, numbers, and a few symbols and punctuation marks. You could create a program that could take ASCII characters and address them to any part of the screen, much as if you were just typing on any part of the screen, like in VI, and create art. That's where we come with this concept of
0: ASCII art. Mm-hmm. You've probably come across this at some point, especially with video games where they go, Hey, I'm going to make something cool that's in ASCII. If you're on Discord, there's often time people will throw ASCII art there. If you're in an MMO, they particularly like using ASCII
1: art there. <laughs> in the era before high-speed internet connections, when you could send graphics over the internet, but it was a very, very intensive and slow process, ASCII art was often used as a quick and dirty way to send images over the internet. Even sometimes a quick and dirty way to send dirty images over the internet because that's how desperate people were. Female silhouettes made out of ASCII characters. It exists. It's frightening. Ken Arnold is not the inventor of the entire concept of doing ASCII art, but he created a program called Curses that allowed you to create ASCII art. And because he was doing this at Berkeley, the hotbed of BSD, the Curses library was included in a version of the Berkeley Standard Distribution, which meant that this curses thing went out to all of these places that were using BSD, which included, of course, just about everybody in the California State University system, including the University of California at Santa Cruz, where two game enthusiasts named Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman were attending college. We're back! Do you see what I did there? We're back!
0: We are back. Curses is really a fascinating thing. It is how you do graphics and user interfaces within a text-based only system. Mm -hmm. This is actually used today. The modern version of it is called nCurses. It is used just to do interfaces in Unix and Linux operating systems where yeah, I want to have a little bit of UI, but I don't want to have full blown graphics going on here. Mm-hmm. This is something that's low level so that I can have something that's presentable and understandable to the user. Maybe I'm using this more for a recovery terminal or maybe a very low level, I just need to change a few settings. It allows you to just have something that's very basic, but still very approachable. Incidentally, one could use it to not just make art, but make, say, a map with. Characters running around on it. (laughs) Monsters. And
1: an at sign. And maybe even a puppy. Exactly. So that brings us full circle back to rogues. It's not a tangent, because this really is important. We wouldn't have Hades today if we hadn't had Multics being attempted in the late 1960s. So it's, it's all connected, but this was just a very long way to get us to the creation of this game. But you have to understand the environment where it was made. It's all connected. It is. You have to understand the environment in which Rogue was made, because without that, you can't understand how it came to be. And more importantly, as we get there a little later in the story, how it came to be distributed and how it came to be played in a wide population. One of the interesting
0: things to keep in mind here is that once you get the base install of, say, FreeBSD done, you would get third-party programs by downloading the source code and compiling it on your computer. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason of doing that is because with the ARPANET and the internet back then, things were really, really slow. So you couldn't really download a really big compiled program. You had to download the source code for it and compile it so that you would have something that would work on your system. Because who knows, maybe it wasn't actually designed or compiled for your system. Computers were very, very less standard back then. So when we talk about vogue here, once they start distributing this to other parts of the world and other campuses and stuff, they're not sending an executable left, right, and the other thing. I don't know what computer you're running on. I don't need to make a <laughs> Windows version of... Rogue, I don't need to make a Unix version of Rogue. I just hand you the source code in C. Very important there, written in C. Mm -hmm. So even if you're connected to the other computers by, say, an acoustic coupler going at 54 bits a second, you don't care. Right. We are just talking about transmitting text. So it goes relatively fast. Mm -hmm. Because it's compiled on your system, it is very customized to your system. And it runs way better, arguably, than in any other case.
1: Exactly. And of course, in the early days, even for playing this game, this was so important. Because you could not do graphics on most of these early systems. Many of them may have had the theoretical capability, if you hooked up the right equipment to it, to do graphics just as a computer. But we have to remember that these are all time-shared systems. You don't get all the memory. You might have a PDP-11 or a VAX, which was the successor to the PDP-11, that has a whopping 128k of memory. Yes, I know that doesn't sound whopping, but believe me, that was like a universe full of memory in the 1970s. You don't get to use all of that memory because you are time-shared with other users. You are putting a lot of pressure on that thing. It's like having a thousand Chrome tabs open at the same time. Try opening a thousand Chrome tabs on your computer, kids. See at what point it crashes your whole system. (laughs) I'll be impressed if you can get past a (laughs) hundred. Exactly. You don't have the memory that you need to update graphics. We've talked about this before. That's why so many of the games, the early games, are text games. Curses provided this capability to create a quote-unquote graphical game that actually doesn't have any graphics at all. Now that we've finally gotten through all that setup, let's turn back to our gentlemen here, Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman. Michael Toy was the son of a nuclear physicist, or is the son of a nuclear physicist. He's still alive. He grew up in Livermore, California, where his father worked for the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is a very big, very important government research facility. He grew up with computers, the mainframes that they had available at the lab. And of course, as is the case everywhere, it doesn't matter how serious the work is that's going on at an institution. If you've got computers at an institution after a certain point in history— You have games on your computer, so of course there were games at the Lawrence Livermore Lab. The game that first hooked Michael Toy is the same game that hooked a lot of people in this early era, Star Trek, which we won't go into detail on because we've detailed it, but the classic Star Trek game by Mike Mayfield. That hooked him into computer games, so much so that wherever he went after that, as he put it in his own words, as he told David Craddock in his book On the Origin of Rogue Likes, which is a a very important source for our podcast here today, the book Dungeon Hacks, as he said, he wrote a clone of Star Trek for every new computer system he encountered for the next 15 years. Every time he went to a computer, he ported Star Trek to it. This included microcomputers. He was an early adopter of microcomputers, even before the Trinity, because, again, his family's a tech-savvy family. He had a Sol 20 computer, and he ported Star Trek to his Sol 20. He enrolled in the University of California, Santa Cruz in the late 1970s. As he put it himself, again, to David Craddock, he was theoretically attending the university, but not really. It just meant that he was enrolled there. He didn't go to class. He didn't do anything except spend all of his time in the computer lab. That's where he wanted to be. He worked a lot on the, the timeshared PDP-11 there that, of course, was running Unix, which by this time was already the de facto, you know, DEC, like I said, they had, DEC had their own time-sharing operating system for the PDP-11 RSTS, but nobody wanted to use that. It was all about the Unix. And then they later upgraded to a VAX, and he discovered that as well. Now, the other thing is that by this time, University of California, Santa Cruz was hooked up to the ARPANET as well. Which means that he was exposed to the most important game that traveled along the early ARPANET, which was Adventure. It's these same games that come up over and over again in these 1970s context: Star Trek, Adventure, Lunar Lander doesn't factor into this story, but it's another one. These constant touchstones because they were the ones that got noticed and they were the ones that got spread. This became kind of the common culture. These were the game you everyone knew. These games in this time period, if you interacted with computers. It was a common computing culture. As with every programmer who encountered adventure in this time period, he just fell head over heels with it. He loved it. We've talked about this adventure effect before, but you know, I think there's a couple of things that are going on here. First of all, it gave that illusion of this huge world, which no computer program had really managed to do before. I think the puzzle solving aspects of it, the figuring out wrestling with the parser and figuring out how to get things done within this game. It appealed to a programmer because it's kind of abstracting what a programmer does as their job. A programmer's job, especially back then when computers were so limited, was coming up with creative ways to interact with the machine and make it do what you wanted to do. Create the clever code that made the machine go. Adventure was a similar experience, except that you were interacting with this cave environment and you were trying to figure out the natural language through the parser that would allow you to use these things and put together these things and figure out how to use these things to solve the puzzle and gather the treasures. It's very much in its own way like computer programming, and I think that's why adventure just spread like wildfire in the programming community. Because if you were someone predisposed to programming a computer, you were predisposed to solving something like adventure. It was the same kind of high. As so many of these programmers that discovered adventure did, he started creating his own text adventures. Because that's what you did when you were a computer programmer that came up with this kind of thing. He started spending all of his time in the computer lab programming different games, different text adventures. He was in love with it. And it was during this time in the lab that he noticed that there was another student that was doing the exact same thing he was. That was Glenn Wickman. Wickman was not as accomplished a programmer as Toy. You know, Toy basically grew up eating, living, breathing computers. He was a real hotshot programmer. Wickman was not much of a programmer. I mean, he was learning, but he was just writing in basic. He was not a hugely adept programmer, but he did have something that Toy didn't have. That was a deep background in game design talking about board, pen and paper. We're not talking about computer games, obviously, at this early date, or video games. He had been creating his own games to play with his friends since he was seven years old. He had discovered Dungeons and & Dragons and had created his own custom campaign world based on C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He had enrolled at UC Santa Cruz specifically because they had a program that allowed you to design your own major by picking various courses and you know getting a, an advisor's approval to say, these courses constitute this skill set, I'm going to do a degree in this. His plan, his purpose going to that school was to create his own custom major in game design so that he could be a professional board game and card game creator. This guy lived games in the same way that Michael Toy lived computers. But he discovered computers at UC Santa Cruz, and he became hooked on them. And he discovered adventure, and he became hooked on adventure. Because he was into designing games, he started designing his own adventure game. Toy noticed that he was doing that, and so they get to talking, as you do, and they get to sharing, and it becomes clear pretty quickly that Wickman doesn't have a great grasp of what he's doing from a programming standpoint. But it also becomes clear that this is a guy that knows a lot about game design. They became friends. They complemented each other well. They ended up renting an apartment together. And they ended up starting to create games together. It was in this context, after they had met and been working on adventure games and all of that, that they discovered curses within the BSD Unix distribution. They saw this ability to place these objects on the screen and create worlds out of ASCII characters, and they thought to themselves, we could create a graphical adventure game using this library. This was around 1980 that they made this discovery. So they decided that they would start work on a graphic adventure game, but they wanted to do something a little bit different. Because there was one thing that they really came to hate. About text adventures. Once you solved the game, you solved the game. Once you got every point possible with an adventure, you were done. There was nothing else to do. There was no point in replaying it. This thing that took you hours and hours and hours to do, you could probably redo in half an hour once you knew what you had to do, because it's just entering a series of commands in sequence go to the right place, do the right thing. They wanted a game with more replayability. You know, Wickman was a Dungeons & Dragons guy, you know? I mean, something like Dungeons & Dragons, you have a rule set. And that rule set forms the basis of your games. But once you finish this adventure, you go on to the next adventure. You can have endless adventures in the world of Dungeons & Dragons. In the world of adventure, you have one adventure. And when it's done, it's done. It's the difference between a rule set and a module. Yes, absolutely. The other thing that frustrated them is they both enjoyed creating adventure games and playing adventure games. But they couldn't play their own adventure games because they created all the puzzles. They placed all the treasures. They built all the rooms. They know where everything is. They can't play their own game. There's no fun in that. They wanted to be able to create something and play that something when they were done creating it. So they thought to themselves, what if we create a game where we randomly generate a dungeon, like a D&D dungeon? What if we create a series of monsters? We'll have 26 of them, one for each letter of the alphabet, because that's what they had in the original Rogue, just the 26. But we'll populate these dungeon levels with them randomly, so we never know which creatures are going to be there. What if we put potions and scrolls to help you out as you delve down in the levels that give you additional abilities, very similar to magic items in D&D. What if we made it so that when you first get a potion, you don't know what it is? You don't know what it will do. Because they want to be able to play their own game. So they want every aspect of it to be mysterious on every playthrough so they could play it too. It's out of these desires to have an adventure that was endlessly replayable and was just as mysterious to its own creators as it was to the random person that picks it up off a file server, that led to this game Rogue. The name came from Wickman. He doesn't know, you know, exactly where it came from. I mean, who can say where these things exactly come from? They did know that, first of all, they wanted a short name, because at those times, short names were important. Some file systems wouldn't even allow for longer names even if they did, shorter names lead to greater, easier discoverabilities. They wanted a short name. They were very much coming from a Dungeons & Dragons background. So, I mean, D&D was a very heavy influence. I mean, all the original monsters in the game were like, straight out of the monsters manual, including a few that would have never flown in a commercial product because they were original creations of TSR that were copyrighted. They're coming out of D&D, but they knew they were creating a solo game. This would be a single-player game with a single character. They knew that D&D was a group game. You have a party of adventures. Yes, you could theoretically just have one adventure, but it's really made to be played with a party. There's this idea that you've kind of gone rogue, because theoretically, I mean, there's no lore like this to the game. It's just, it's just the process of coming up with a name. It's not like this is the story behind the game, but he, kinda, he thinks he kind of had this idea that you would have been part of a party, but you decided to delve off on your own. So you've gone rogue. Plus, Rogue is a character class in D&D, and plus Rogue is a short, simple name, which was important back then. That's how you come up with the name Rogue for this program. They did create a goal for the game, because they didn't want each individual session of the game to be endless. They just wanted the game itself to have endless variety. So they came up with just a MacGuffin, and it's, and it's, just, it's the standard D&D thing again. You know, in D&D, you're usually, in the early days especially, when it really was focused on dungeon crawling, you're delving into a dungeon to get a treasure. I mean, that's what you're doing. It's not any kind of stretch to say that they've decided that, you know, you're going to delve the dungeon and and get a treasure. They created just a MacGuffin called the Amulet of Yendor, and the Amulet of Yendor is on the deepest level of the dungeon, because there are multiple levels to it. So you're descending level by level to find the Amulet of Yendor and, and beat the game. That's it. Uh, you know, they use the curses library, so there aren't solid walls. You know, they use things like plus signs and equal signs to create walls and doors. They use letters, as I said, the capital letters to represent the monsters. Of course, for your own character, they use the at sign. The at sign had already entered common parlance on the ARPANET as the extension for email addresses. The whole idea of at such and such a place already existed within the concept of email by this time. This is the symbol that is showing you where you are. This is the symbol saying you are here, or you are at here, or at here, or at. That's logical again. That's how you get the at sign as the designator for your character. These dungeons in the original Rogue, they can only be the size of the single screen. They didn't have multi-screen dungeons, so you could only have a dungeon floor as big as the screen memory you were working on, the resolution of the screen you're working on. Now, the dungeon's multiple levels. You do descend deeper and deeper. But each level can exist wholly on a single screen. Uh, And you have the different... We are talking about some pretty small resolutions here. Mm -hmm. The
0: standard column width is 80 characters per line for a standard Unix terminal.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. So each level was just a few rooms in size. These rooms would be connected by corridors. There'd be doors to open to to go to the next room, and then there'd be stairs down to the next level. So they were relatively compact. The monsters didn't have a lot of variety, even though they had different names. They didn't really, in this original version, have much different strategy between them. But this was something new. This is something that hadn't really been seen on microcomputers before. The Play-Doh system, which we've talked about, had some even more elaborate dungeon crawlers by this time, because they had their fancy highfalutin plasma displays. But the average computer user at the average computer lab had really never seen anything like this on a computer before. Something that was endlessly playable, and you go through the dungeon, you get more powerful, you gather loot, you identify the loot, you use the loot to get better, you clear the dungeon, you get to the bottom and, and win the game. That's just something that really hadn't been seen by most computer users before, outside of these, uh, those lucky privileged few that were, say, on the Play Doh system. Because it was created to run in Unix, It was instantly usable by people all over the place. It could theoretically be used. They created this. Uh, We don't know exactly when it was finished. It was certainly finished by 1981. Uh, It may not have been finished by 1980. But at that point, Michael Toy ends up leaving Santa Cruz and going to the University of California at Berkeley. So Wickman at this point kind of falls off. There's briefly a fork in Rogue Creation, and Wickman kind of keeps a version going for a very brief period of time. At this point, Wickman basically drops out. He reemerges in a different context later, which we may cover in the next episode. But in original Rogue Creation, this is the point where he falls off. But then Toy ends up going to Berkeley. They know that Ken Arnold wrote curses. Toy knows that Ken Arnold wrote curses, and Toy knows that Ken Arnold is at Berkeley. So when he gets to Berkeley, he immediately seeks out Arnold then Toy and Arnold continue to improve Rogue. They optimize it. They make it run better. They make it an overall smoother experience. Eventually, this version of the game becomes so popular that it actually becomes a part of the Berkeley Standard Distribution in 1984, first appearing in version 4.2. So at that point, it becomes kind of universally out there. Now, they don't share the source code Unlike Unix itself, they are very possessive of the source code, so not anybody can come in and modify the game, change the game, recreate the game. But people all over the country can play it, and once it's part of the standard distribution, the Berkeley standard distribution, it spreads like wildfire all over the place. Because that's one of the leading versions of Unix, and if you have that version of Unix, then you have Rogue, natively. It actually started to spread even before that because there was also another very interesting component tied to Unix that was created around this time that used a specific protocol within Unix called Unix to Unix Copy or UUCP. That was essentially a network architecture, a series of computer programs and protocols that formed a network architecture that allowed a computer running Unix that had a modem to dial into another Unix computer and then do file sharing automatically between those two computers. A couple of very clever students in 1979 at Duke University, by the name of Tom Truscott and Jim Ellis, thought to themselves, what if we could create a system in which a user could post a message and then someone on another computer that was equipped with UUCP, UUCP could then be made to automatically query other computers that have posted stuff to that same server and scan for any new articles posted there since the last time it checked and automatically download those new posts to your own computer. Sounds like Usenet to me. It is indeed Usenet. So this is the invention of Usenet by Tom Truscott and Jim Ellis, and they had a couple of other people helping them out from Duke and UNC as well. They created this decentralized system It's similar in some ways to a BBS, but the difference is when you have a BBS, you have a single server and you have other people dialing into that one server and then downloading from that. It's similar in concept to a BBS. It predates BBSs, but there's no central distribution hub. It's completely distributed. Basically, anyone can post to a particular news group from anywhere, and then any other computer running Usenet can then just ping everything that's been posted to that particular server and then downloaded, it all it's It's completely distributed. It's basically querying across this entire user space of Unix and searching for new things from anywhere and everywhere, not just one computer, not just one server, but everywhere, and then providing those updates. So you got this thing called Usenet, which was primarily used for transferring text, but could also be used as it developed to transfer files. So you could actually share programs like Rogue across Usenet. So if you had a Unix computer that was equipped with a modem, you could get involved with Usenet and you could trade programs. This is all networking stuff and internet-like stuff before the internet. This was the infrastructure around which these programs could be shared. In our second part of this two-part look at the creation of the Roguelike, We're going to see how Rogue, by spreading through these various avenues, spawned other games that were like it, that then got even wider distribution in some cases even than Rogue did, and spawned other roguelike games until we eventually get to the modern indie scene where they become ubiquitous. We'll spend most of our time talking more about the 1980s and the 1990s and the stuff that we have more perspective on, but we will take this all the way to the modern indie scene and kind of see how this became so pervasive from this one little game made in this one little college that just happened to be connected to one of the first really big wider worlds of intercomputer communication with Unix and BSD and Usenet and the ARPANET and, and all of this stuff. All this stuff is still out there today, kid. Yeah, absolutely. That's the incredible thing.
0: If you want to play around with the Berkeley Standard Division, I suggest playing around with either uh, FreeBSD, Mm -hmm. and you can play around with the modern version of it. You, I believe, should still be able to play Rogue on it. Absolutely. (laughs) If you're just interested more in the game... There are branches of the game out there. You can find Rogue out there. I think Steam actually has it for about 3 bucks. Mm-hmm. Even if you want to see some of its descendants, NetHack is very much in the very same vein as Rogue.
1: Absolutely, and we will be covering NetHack in some detail in Part 2 as well. Right. I'll
0: throw in some links to investigate, and you can actually just run NetHack in a DOS terminal on your computer or whatever else and have a sense of what's going on. Back in the day, when they had an at sign and a little symbol that represented your dog and you're going to kill the orc, and then you got this blue potion, and you don't know if that's poison or life. Better hope you find an identify spell. <laughs> Absolutely. I find it fascinating that we've come into the same kind of story before where you have technology developing, sort of like with the early computers to whirlwind and some of the first early mm-hmm. displays leading to such things as tennis for two right. and then that goes on to spawn its myriad of things here we have what is arguably one of the most influential operating systems that is still extremely pervasive today and is responsible for a lot of gaming that is critical to not just the indie scene but for the development of gaming as a whole.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I
0: am sure a lot of the non-roguelike games are certainly looking at certain roguelike games and going,
1: you know, I like that concept, but I just want it static. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Rogue is one of the most influential games of all time. Through its descendants, it is one of the most influential games uh, of all time. We'll talk about this more in the next episode, but you can obviously draw lines from rogue straight to things like FTL and Spelunky and Hades, which are very obvious rogue descendants, and things that are just a little bit different, like Diablo, which obviously is, is huge. But then even anything where you have this sense of discovery and exploration and in a wider world, whether it's a, a fully random world or, or not, even games like Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring have a little bit of that rogue spirit in their DNA even if they're not in any way actual roguelikes. This whole idea of going on an adventure and and discovery and having gameplay be emergent based on the order in which you encounter things and the powers that you get over the course of the game is just all very much rogue. And, And some of this stuff, of course, would have developed anyway without rogue. But it is such a crucial game. Like you said, it goes then all the way back to the time sharing before that and the operating systems before that. You know, once again, Whirlwind is the start of it all, which it it always seems like in one way or another, Whirlwind is the start of it all, even though nobody played games on, on a Whirlwind unless you count the very primitive bouncing ball goes back to there again and through Rogue and and through to the present day, which is why I I think deep dives into some of these games. I mean, I I love all our deep dives into individual games, but I think it's what makes deep dives into games like this all the more fascinating just because of all the pieces that have to connect to get us from there to here.
0: One of the things that I've always thought of, and this is coming off the tail end of our anniversary here... Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I found our conversation fascinating is that it reminded me of an old television show called Connections.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure.
0: Where it takes something that is completely innocuous, table salt, and why table salt is the way it is, has a fascinating and weird history of whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that we take for granted that we just look at like, oh yeah, that's a thing, yeah, someone invented it, but well, whatever. You look at the history and influences on that. Why was salt prized? Why was salt mined? Why didn't they just take some water out of the ocean and dry it? (laughs) Why did they fight (laughs) wars over salt?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, kids, they fought wars over salt. empires rose and fell, especially in Central Africa and whatnot. Exactly.
0: Something innocuous. And the same thing is what, when I talked to Alex a bunch of years ago before we started this podcast that just struck in my head. It's like, he's telling me these stories. These stories have a very deep history. Something as simple as a video game that we play and enjoy. Mm -hmm. It has influences not just on where it came from, but our entire civilization, our entire society. Mm -hmm. The world runs largely on Unix in some shape or form. That might come across as being shocking, but really it is. A lot of the backbone of what runs the internet, a lot of the backbone that runs a lot of electronics, is Unix esque and whatever distribution way they come up with it. It is shocking.
1: Yahoo, which you know nobody cares about anymore, but you know, pre-Google was one of the search engines that everyone went to, you know. Yahoo was entirely run by a, a variation of BSD. This is another example. <laughs>
0: It is crazy how all of this stuff interacts and how our society, our livelihood, our civilization is built upon the most innocuous things and can have mad ways that it could have gone. I mean, I can only imagine what horrors might have befallen us if Ma Bell was actually the one that put out BSD as the operating system for everything. And then later on got broken up after the fact as opposed to before the fact. Right? Would we still have open source? would that still be a thing? Exactly. Certainly something interesting to think about and consider as you continue on with your daily lives. Makes you think. We will continue the story next time on They Create Worlds as we delve into the future of Rogue and how it influenced everything else. Next time on They Create Worlds. Now, where's my dog? Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.